Good morning. We are on a final stretch leading to Easter. But there's some pretty horrible stuff between now and Easter. As we go through the Gospel of John, today we come to an incredibly difficult passage. In fact, I would say it's the second worst passage in the Bible. Bested only by where we'll be next week. There's something built into the human system, the human spirit. It's part of being created in the image of God, but we have this mindset for justice. Now, we live in a culture that screams for justice for every little thing. It's, it's usually fake justice in some ways. But there is something in us hardwired because of how we're created that we, when we see, a, when we see justice missed or passed over, it, it offends us. It, it, it hurts us deep in our soul. There's a whole genre of, of movies that, that play to that impulse in us to grieve over uh, over justice lost. And there are a lot of uh, movies that, that you would have heard of that kind of have this theme of, of somebody that's been unjustly convicted. And, and uh, you know, movies like The Green Mile or Shawshank Redemption or Double Jeopardy, even The Fugitive, the Harrison Ford movie, a television show years ago before that, a man convicted of a crime that he didn't do, framed and... Uh, and is on the run trying to prove his innocence. But I'd say in this genre of film, probably the, the greatest film ever made was To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, if you've never read the book, you need to read the book, uh, at least watch the movie. It's the story of a man who is maybe one of the gentlest souls on earth. And yet he is convicted of a crime that he did not do because of a kind of irrational, um, in, in unexplainable prejudice. And, and the movie is a brilliantly acted movie, but it, it's filled with this weightiness of, of what it means when justice is not just missed, but it's actually perverted. It's, it's twisted. As powerful a movie as I think To Kill a Mockingbird is, there's no movie that's ever been made that can capture this sense of indignation that we have when we properly read and understand the story of the last hours of the life of Jesus Christ. Um, we saw him arrested and, and sort of bounced around first to Annas, the, 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 the power behind the throne, if you will, and then to Caiaphas, the high priest, and eventually makes his way to, to Pilate, the Roman governor who is in Jerusalem for this time. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives somewhere else, but he has come to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. It's one of the two highest 
uh, religious celebrations in, in Judaism. And so he's there to supervise the military to make sure that the Roman army doesn't get out of hand, to make sure that the Jews sort of follow the rules and, and, and overall to just keep peace. So Pilate is, is in town. He stays in a palace, but in, in the Gospel of John, it, the palace is given the name the Praetorium because the Praetorium was the name given to any place where a Roman ruler uh, had taken up residence, even a temporary place. It's kind of like, like when we say that any plane that the President of the United States flies on, that plane, by virtue of his presence, becomes Air Force One. Well, we're going to read about the Praetorium, but that is simply where Pilate was staying, and it becomes his official residence, and so it becomes the place where trials and official business can be conducted. As we look at the passages that we're going to, that we're going to see this morning, um, I've entitled this lesson, God Condemned as Guilty. And my task, my overwhelming task in this passage is, uh, and I understand it's family worship day, and so we have a lot of our, our kids are in the room today. My task is to, without being excessively explicit, my task is to get us to go from the English words, some of which really don't have much meaning for us in our experience, to get us to use our sanctified imaginations today and capture in our minds the exact scene that is unfolding before us in, in the next section of the Gospel of John. We've seen Jesus arrested, and we left him last week with Pontius Pilate, who has been interrogating Jesus. And with the question, what is truth, Pilate sort of dismisses Jesus and, and is ready to be done with the whole, the whole episode. That's where we left off. And so today we're going we're gonna to begin with um, the second half of, of John chapter 18, verse 38, and we're going to read to verse 16 of chapter 19. So I want to read this entire passage, and, and if you'll just take your Bibles and, and follow along with me. Um, then we'll, we'll go back and, and, and break it down in a way so that hopefully we, we leave together with, with a fresh sense of exactly what it is we've looked at. Um, like I said, some of these words don't really mean much to us. We, don't, we, we lose the, the, the forcefulness that these words would have had for a first century reader because we don't have the experiences with these words. And so that, that's what I want to try and help you capture. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning um, after Pilate has said in verse 38, what is truth? After saying this, Pilate came out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. However, you have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover. Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they shouted again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a rebel. So Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and put a purple cloak on him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face again and again. And then Pilate came out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you will know that I find no grounds at all for charges in his case." Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no grounds for charges in his case. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and that I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews shouted, saying, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, look, your king. So they shouted away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. All right, let's, let's talk about this. This is, a, this is a difficult passage to teach for this reason. The story that is unfolding in these verses has the fingerprints of Satan all over it. Now, there may be somebody here that goes, oh, okay, here we go. Pastor's using hyperbole. It's a little, you know, over the top. Listen, uh, uh, let, me just, let me just give you a disclaimer up front. I believe Jesus Christ was the perfect human, the complete Son of God, made flesh so that He could live a perfect human life so that in a death that He didn't deserve, He could pay the penalty for sin, and that payment could then be applied to those of us who do not have the ability to pay for our own sins, much less the sins for anybody else. I think that the murder of Jesus Christ is the greatest offense ever committed in the history of mankind. And I think that those who are a part of this story were motivated by a demonic reality that you dismiss to your own danger. Let's look at this passage. It starts with what I call a detestable bargain. Here we have Pilate. We've already established the fact that the Jews hate Pilate and Pilate hates the Jews. All right? To, to the Jews, Pilate was the representative of Caesar. He was the entire issue of the oppression of Rome, the, the invasion and occupation of Israel by Rome. Uh, it was all embodied in one person, the governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a typical Roman politician in the sense that nobody wanted this job. 
I mean, this area of Judea, it was not high on anybody's list. This was one of those jobs that you took because you needed to get some experience on your resume, and you were just trying to keep the peace. You were trying to keep the tax money flowing. You wanted to have nothing noticeable. You didn't want any headlines in Rome coming from Judea because eventually you wanted to be promoted to someplace better. Nobody wanted to be there if they were a part of the Roman Empire, including the soldiers that were there, including especially Pontius Pilate. He didn't like the Jews. He, we have historical records that he often would do things specifically to uh, insult the Jews, to try, and, uh, to try and express his disdain. So what we have here is a Jewish squabble in his mind that has been brought and dumped in his lap, and he doesn't want anything to do with it because he frankly thinks it's beneath him the only thing that keeps him occupied is his priority to not let things get out of hand. And anytime you have, in his mind, a Messiah wannabe, you have the potential for a disaster, especially when you attach it to a highly charged theological atmosphere like the Passover. The Passover in the spring and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the fall, those were the two times when the religious fervor of the Jews was, was at a fever pitch and things were a tinderbox in Jerusalem. It's because of that Pilate makes his way here to, to come be uh, in Jerusalem. Now, he, he's already interviewed Jesus once. And his determination, based on the conversation that he's had, is that Jesus is not guilty of anything. And so he goes out to the Jews, but he's, he's got a plan in his head about how to wrap this up so he can get on with his day. See, for him, this is still not a major issue. He's ready to just dispense with it and move on. So he goes out in, in verse 38, and he says, I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. In other words, I've done an official Roman inquiry there's no guilt here to be punished. However, you have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover. Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now, we don't have a lot of historical evidence for this custom that, that Pilate mentions, but apparently uh, in, in a couple of decades before this, in order to placate the Jews, in order to sort of, uh, you might call it a, a pressure release valve, the Romans had agreed to a custom where in this high fever pitch moment when everybody was there and, and sort of Jewish nationalism was, at a, uh, was, was there in, in fervor, uh, the, the Romans had said, you know, uh, we'll let you pick one Roman-held prisoner and we'll release him as uh, a, an act of goodwill on our part. And apparently it had become kind of a standard part of the Passover celebration processes that they went through. So... He comes out and he says, here's this guy, Jesus. He's not guilty of anything. So you have um, this custom. How about if I release Jesus as this year's prisoner to be released? Now, here's the problem. Pilate can't help himself. He can't just schmooze with these people because he, he, he really hates them. And so he takes this opportunity, even as he's sort of offering them a solution to their, to their Jesus problem as he sees it, he, he says this, um, therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now, that's going to do nothing to de-escalate this situation. 
I mean, what it is, is it is a, it is a jab at these Jewish leaders, and Pilate knows that. And so here's their response. They weren't inclined to, to back off of this. We know that. But here's their response, verse 40. So they shouted again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a rebel. That's what John tells us. In some of the translations that you have, if you look at other gospels, sometimes the word is used for Barabbas that, describe, that, that, means, that means bandit. One of the capital crimes in the ancient world was highway robbery. I've mentioned to you the Pax Romana, which was uh, the peace across the Roman Empire that the Roman government had had uh, implemented that they that they demanded because the idea was for the first time in human history a citizen of Rome could travel from one end of the known world to the other end of the known world and not be assaulted because Rome's hold on the earth was so complete that you were safe wherever you went. Well, highway robbery was a pretty risky but fairly prominent career, and people would, would stop travelers either as they were arriving to a major city or as they were leaving from a major city, and they would rob them. And so Rome took that very seriously, and they would send out these, uh, uh, you know, they would send out troops periodically to kind of sweep the, the, the territory. And if you were found to be a highway robber and you were arrested, as far as Rome was concerned, that was a capital offense. You ended up on a cross. But John uses a different word. It's not the word bandit. It's the word translated here, rebel. And it's, it's a word that was used in the, in the first century to describe what we would call a zealot insurgent. Now, the zealots were a radical party within Judaism that had taken uh, an oath uh, with each other to throw off the yoke of Rome any way they could. And one of the standard approaches of the zealots, they carried small daggers, I mean, really sort of oversized knives, and they were, they were small enough that they could be concealed in your clothing. And one of the oaths that zealots took was that they would try, a Roman soldier, that was a prize, but a Roman politician, that was, that was the goal. The, the idea was to get close enough to a Roman in a crowd where you could draw that little dagger and you could stab him, assassinate a Roman official, and then slip away into the crowd and not be caught. That was the political strategy of the zealots. John's word here, Barabbas was a rebel, implies that, John, that, that Barabbas was a part of that group, that he was an assassin aiming his knife at Roman officials. Now, there's no, there's no problem at all in the idea of, of Barabbas being a highway robber, robber and a, a zealot at the same time, because the whole idea was to create enough um, guerrilla-like resistance and chaos that Rome would eventually, their hope was that Rome would pack up and go home. What's ironic about Barabbas is that the Jewish leadership calls for Barabbas to be the person released according to the custom of the Passover. Barabbas appears to have been actually guilty of the very charge, insurrection against Rome, rebellion against Caesar, Barabbas was actually guilty of the very charge that Jesus was not guilty of for which he was being tried. It was a detestable bargain because they chose Barabbas. Now, I'll explain in just a minute why I think, why I think that happened. 
Let's look next. It's what I call, in, in chapter 19, we move to what I call a demonic mockery. And I don't want you to think that I use that language lightly. Um, I think the word demonic here is appropriate because I think what we're about to see is not explainable in purely human terms. All right? Look at the first three verses of chapter 19. So Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged. Now let's talk about that for a, a bit because flogged is not a word that we're real familiar with. I mean, we may have some sort of casual idea. We know that pirates flogged pirates that tried to go AWOL or, or something, you know what I mean? But, but let me explain to you, and, and I want to be real careful because of, because of our, our children, but, but to be flogged in the Roman way 2,000 years ago, they would take, uh, they would form a whip, had, a, had a, a, a solid handle, and out of that whip would be a series of le- leather straps or thongs. And it was, uh, it was designed to be a whip for a prisoner that was taken and his arms would be bound around a post where he would have to stand. He couldn't, he couldn't get away. He was, he was unprotected. And that, that whip, that leather whip, would have been a nasty weapon anyway. But the Romans are always good at perfecting torture. They would take the end of those leather straps and embed in the leather pieces of metal or, or bone. So what happens is, as they would put a prisoner on, on time to a post, there would be someone who was very adept, and, and the idea was the very first blow, <laughs> the, the initial experience was that it would take all the breath out of your body. I mean, if you've ever fallen off of a ladder or something, you hit the ground, and it's just like you, you, can't, you can't get breath into your lungs. That would have been the initial experience. But the way that, that this happened, as the first blow and each successive blow happened, the, the leather straps would strike the prisoner across the back, and then the ends would, would wrap around. So the leather would wrap around, but like fish hooks, the bone or the metal pieces would actually then um, break the skin. And a skilled, a skilled flogger, I don't know, is that, is that a word, a flogger? Uh, a, a soldier skilled in this, in this practice, this torture, he would strike the blow, the, the leather would strike the back, and then the, the ends would wrap around, and then he would... Instead of releasing, he would pull, and skin and tissue would be pulled with the bone and metal from the whip. And as he worked his way, he would strike in different places so that each time the ends would, would latch onto a different section of, of skin and tissue and, and, and pull it away. Flogging was, was the kind of torture that would produce a tremendous loss of blood. Uh, it was often done to the point where the flesh and the, t- and the tissue was, was so pulled away that vital organs were exposed. And it was not uncommon in the ancient world for somebody eventually condemned to be crucified to actually not get to the cross, but to die from the flogging that preceded it. Now, the reason they did the flogging was the loss of blood contributed to the shorter 
a shorter time on the cross necessary for the person to die. Here, we don't have any idea that Jesus is yet on his way to the cross, but, but Pilate has decided, he's, he does what every tyrant does. He's, he's, tried, he's tried his first strategy, which is to offer Jesus as, a, as an exchange within this custom that they have. The Jews didn't go for that. They demanded further punishment. Pilate knows that Jesus is not guilty of anything. He's already said that once. He's going to end up saying it two more times. But he does what every tyrant does. He thinks there must be something here still that I'm not fully aware of. So he decides that torture is appropriate to try and secure a confession to tell him what's really going on here. Clearly, Jesus has done something wrong. So if I, if I literally flog him, eventually he will break and he'll tell me what I need to know. All right, now... Here you have Jesus. He's been flogged. We don't know how many, how many strikes. We don't know the details of this. We just know that typically um, he would have been a bloody mess with, with tissue and skin hanging loose and blood spilling by the, by the pints. It says, verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. Now, there is a there is a plant in that part of the world called the date palm, and it has vines that, ha that produce thorns that are about three to four inches long. Now, in the ancient world, a lot of times on coins or on hieroglyphic drawings or other things, we see that kings were often represented with a crown that had the appearance of the sun, like a sunburst, like, like rays of light coming from the, from the crown. What they did here was they took these massive thorns on a long vine from the date palm tree and they wound it into a circle. They actually braided it into a circle with the thorns at all angles so that it looked like a sort of a demonic you know, mockery of this radiance crown that was so common in the ancient world. So they took this crown of thorns that was supposed to have this image of, of, of brilliance, and they pressed it down on his head, which would have been extraordinarily painful. I mean, I don't even buy my wife roses because I don't like thorns. These were, these were horrible thorns. But then there's more. Bloody mess crown of thorns, blood probably now flowing down his face, getting in his eyes. It says, and then they put a purple cloak on him. Purple was the color of royalty. This is again a mockery. There were none of these soldiers that were royalty. None of them actually had a purple cloak. This was probably something that somebody had discarded. I mean, this is the kind of thing you pick up at a, a Roman thrift shop uh, this, was a, this was a purple robe that somebody had worn at some point that had probably seen better days. It was probably significantly faded, but there was just enough purple left in it that it was appropriate for this moment. Somebody brings it out, and, and again, without being too graphic, you can imagine with all the loss of blood and, and everything on his back, to put anything over his back would have been massively uncomfortable and hurtful. Bloodied torso blood in his eyes, crown of thorns on his head, now this mocking purple robe on his back. 
And then verse 3. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face again and again. You see, just like Pilate, the governor, these soldiers, they didn't want to be there. They were just doing their time until they could get posted to a better location. They hated the Jews. They, they viewed them as troublemakers. They, were always, they always had to be on the lookout because a Roman soldier was always a target for a possible assassination. And here in this moment in time, they have one Jew, and he's, he, his, his trial is about him being the king. And he's been released into the hands of these hardened Roman soldiers. And you, you can't even, even with a sanctified imagination, you can't imagine the language and the laughter and the sheer joy of inflicting pain that was in that moment. But they've now dressed him like a king and they come up to him one after another again and again and again. Hail, king of the Jews! Whap! The next person, whap! The next person, whap! And Pilate goes back outside. He says in verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you will know that I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. What's happened here is Pilate returns to the Jews who are still waiting outside. Remember, they, can't, they won't come inside the praetorium because it's Gentile and they don't, want to be, they don't want to be made ceremonially unclean even while they're committing organized murder. And Pilate comes out and he says, listen, I want you to see that, that, that I still don't find any guilt in him, okay? Now think about that. Pilate had a rare moment, an opportunity here. I understand that all of this story had to unfold a certain way because it's the plan of God to bring redemption to the world. But it's hard to not play the what-if game. What if, instead of dismissing Jesus with a what-is-truth kind of question, what if Pilate had paused long enough to have a real conversation to say, what is truth? What is it that is missing in my life? Why, why do I hate my life? What if he'd had a conversation with Jesus? Or what if here now, having announced Jesus is not guilty once, now he comes out announcing that Jesus is not guilty a second time? What if Pilate said, listen, I'm the judge here. And there's no guilt. I'm releasing this man. I don't care what you say. He would have gone down in history as one of the boldest judges in all of human history. And yet, here we have him. He brings Jesus out, and he says, I want you to see that, that I, have, I don't find anything uh, wrong in this man. He's not guilty. But then verse 5, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, here's the plan. Jesus may be even being helped out, or if, if not helped out, the door is open and he sort of, sort of limps out to be put on display, bloodied torso, blinded by blood in his face, his face swollen beyond recognition, crown of thorns, purple robe. What was, what was Pilate doing? He's saying, listen, I know you guys want, but, but here, listen, there's no guilt here. 
And, you know, he's learned his lesson. Isn't this enough? Say, well, how do you know he wasn't recognizable? Well, let me read you something, one verse from the Old Testament. In Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53, the prophet speaks about the Messiah 800 years in advance. It's one of the grandest prophecies of the Old Testament. There's one verse, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, where God is speaking about the Messiah. He's he's speaking to Israel about the Messiah. And he says, Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance, meaning the Messiah, his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. In other words, the punishment that Jesus was given made him physically unrecognizable. If he hadn't been announced as Jesus and people just saw him, they wouldn't have known who it was. There was that much damage done to him in in these moments. And for all the laughter and mockery of Roman soldiers, here's, here's here's where my mind goes. Every time somebody said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him across the face, that bloodied face, those swollen eyes, every time somebody punched him in the face, there was in hell a roar of approval. This episode is demonic in every sense of that definition. He brings him out and he says, all right, let's, let's, let's be done with this matter. He's learned his lesson. Obviously, he's been beaten uh, almost uh, to the end of his life. Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Because see, when you are motivated by the demonic, you can't be, you won't be satisfied with anything short of death. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no grounds for charges in his case. Now he said that how many times now? I find no ground for charges in his case. What kind of godless judge announces innocence three times and then turns one over for for punishment? Okay, look at how this unfolds. There's a reason for it all. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, this is interesting because what they've just done is in the middle of the trial, they've switched charges. You see, the charge was originally insurrection. It was a political charge. He's a threat to Caesar, and he needs to be executed. But when the representative of Caesar doesn't find any evidence for that charge, immediately they switch to a theological charge. This man claims to be the son of God. Now, the next verse is very important here because it says, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, let me explain that. There's already been in his in his conversation with Jesus up to this point, there's already been an awareness on his part, obviously, that this is no... 
this is no Galilean peasant. This is not just uh, somebody who, who, who's ab- absolutely intimidated by, by the, the might and the power of Rome. There's something unusual about this man. Here now they've said he claims to be the son of God. In every Roman in the ancient world, because of the religious atmosphere that they lived in, every Roman had some element of superstition. Because you see, the Roman gods, like the Greek gods before them, were capricious. They were unpredictable. They often came in disguise to try and catch people so that they could punish them or they could uh, make them pay for something. The gods couldn't be trusted. The best thing that you could do in, in Roman religion was just keep a low profile and stay out of the way of the gods. Well, here, there's the theological charge that, that the Jews mean in a Jewish sense, but, but Pilate clearly understands it in a Roman sense. And in his mind, the first thing that happens is he thinks, do I actually have a God-man, a demigod in my prison? Well, to him, that's a horrible thought. Because if this is one of the Roman gods come in disguise, he's the one on trial. And he's scared to death. Well, he is the one on trial, but he doesn't realize just how. So here's what happens. Look at this. It says he was even more afraid. Verse 9, and he entered the praetorium again. He left the Jews outside and went back inside where Jesus was. And he says, where are you from? Now, he's not asking if Jesus is from Galilee or if he was born in Nazareth. He's asking a question about whether or not he's a demigod, whether he's one of the Roman gods in disguise. And I love this. And this is why I say, when you read this story, never think that Jesus is a victim of circumstance. All right, Jesus is the one in control here because look what happens. It says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Why? Because it was a stupid question. Because it doesn't deserve the dignity of an answer. And so here is the power of Rome embodied in one man saying, where are you from? And Jesus just looks at him like, hmm. And he does, Pilate does what all tyrants always do. He plays his his authority card. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now, in my sanctified imagination, Pilate is saying those words and he's doing his best to bluff Jesus with intimidation. But in my mind, there's a little bit of panic in his voice. So you're not talking to me? Don't, don't you understand? Don't, don't you know I can, I can release you or, or I can crucify you? Listen, there's only one person intimidated in this conversation, and it is not Jesus. Don't you know I have authority over you? Now, Jesus was silent for the first question because it was a stupid question. But now here's a question worthy of an answer. Don't you know I have authority to release you? I have authority to crucify you. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. You think you answer to Caesar? Yeah, well, I answer to the sovereign of the universe. And you are an extra in this play, a puppet in this drama. You would have no authority over me whatsoever 
except that the one from above has decided to make use of you to bring his purposes to power. And then Jesus says something very interesting that's uncalled for. As far as we know, it's just Pilate and Jesus. Maybe there's a bodyguard standing off to the side, but, but they're, they're alone. And Jesus goes on to say, um, you have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the high priest. He's talking about Caiaphas. Why? Okay. Well, let, 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 me, let me help you think about this. What Jesus is saying to Pilate is, listen, you're, you're just an extra in this story. And I understand you're just doing your job. You're not doing it well, but you're just doing your job. But the real guilt for what's happening here, it goes to the high priest because the high priest only had one job. You remember, you know those memes that you always see and it's like some, some stupid thing happens and you're like, you only had one job? Well, a high priest in the first century literally only had one job. Their one job was to be preparing the people to receive the Messiah, to acknowledge the Messiah when he came, and to lead the people to follow their king. That was, the only thing, that was his only job identify the Messiah, and call the people to worship him. But see, the high priest's role for a number of years had been occupied by a succession of high priests that were politically active, they were spiritually insensitive, they were worldly-minded, they were all self-seeking opportunists. In the same way that Pilate was just trying to put in his time so they could get onto a better post somewhere. The high priest was only concerned with maintaining a system that created his privilege and allowed him to, to be somebody uh, during his lifetime. But Jesus said, you, you don't know any better. But the one who turned me over, he knows better. And the real judgment is going to be on him. Now, look what happens next. Verse 12, as a result of this, this is how I know Pilate was the one intimidated here. As a result of this, meaning this conversation, Pilate made efforts to release him. Listen, it's interesting because for three times, Pilate basically says, he's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. But because his wife, in another one of the Gospels, we know that his wife has a dream that this man really was innocent, and she con conveys that dream to this superstitious man, along with everything else he's concerned about. He moves from not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, to innocent. You do understand there's a difference between not guilty and innocent. He's not guilty of any of your charges, but then he's innocent. This is critical because the substitute lamb of the Passover. It had to be a lamb without blemish. That is innocent. He goes out and he says, he, he makes every effort to release him, it says. And in, then in the last part of verse 12, but the Jews shouted saying, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. 
Okay, two things about this passage. Number one, they've now shifted again. They went from a political charge of insurrection and rebellion against Caesar to a theological charge. This man has made him out to be the son of God, made himself out to be the son of God. And they've shifted now back to the political charge. He is a threat to Caesar. And what they do is they play their final card. And this is what backs uh, Pilate into a corner. They said, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Now, let me explain that. Friend of Caesar was an actual title. It was given to a very select small group of people. If you were in the Roman government in some capacity and you functioned in a way that you did something that came to Caesar's attention, something that was to Caesar's advantage, something that Caesar looked at and said, oh man, that, that's awesome. I, I really like what this guy's done for me. He could bestow the title on you of friend of Caesar. If you had the title friend of Caesar, if you could whip out your ID card for that very exclusive club, I'm a friend of Caesar, what that meant is for the rest of your life, you had virtually unchallengeable power wherever you went in the Roman Empire. It was your get out of jail free card. I'm a friend of Caesar. Every Roman politician aspired to do something in the course of his career that would be recognized so that he could be designated a friend of Caesar. And what are the Jews doing here? They've saved this. They're saying, listen, if you don't do what we're telling you to do, word will get back to Caesar that there was a disruption here, that there was a problem, that there was some chaos going on in Jerusalem. And rather than becoming a friend of Caesar, you're likely to get posted to an even worse place than this. So you might want to rethink your plan right about now. Well, it was effective because what we discover is that as afraid as Pilate was of Jesus, he was more afraid of losing his career to Caesar. You're not a friend of Jesus. I mean, you're not a friend of Caesar. Anybody that makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 13, therefore... When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Uh, the pavement, that's really an archaeological reference. You can find what, what was probably the courtyard scene that was paved with Roman mosaics that they're talking about. This is, this is where it happened. Uh, but it says he sat down on the judgment seat. That's the Greek word bima. The bema, a judgment seat, that was where a ruler had to sit. That's the place from which official verdicts or pronouncements would be issued. Uh, in fact, if you go to the, to the ruins of the, of the ancient city of Corinth today, uh, you can still find the political uh, theater that has the bema. It still, it still exists. You can see it there where a ruler would have taken his seat to be in an official capacity to announce judgment. So that's what he does. He knows Jesus is not guilty. In fact, he knows beyond not guilty, he knows Jesus is innocent. He's now exhausted everything that he can do. He doesn't want to go this way, but his career is his driving priority. 
And they have threatened that in a not-so-subtle way, and he understands. So he's going to give them what they've demanded. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat, meaning the verdict is about to be announced. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now let's pause there because nothing in the Word of God is there by accident. It was the sixth hour. In Roman accounting of time in the ancient world, the clock started at dawn. So the sixth hour was about noon. You say, well, why in the middle of this dramatic story would, would John insert a time reference? But here's the reason. Because it's the day of Passover. Now, let me take 30 seconds and, and explain something. If you've been paying attention, there's, there's, some, there's a handful of you in here and you go, wait a minute, the day of the Passover? I thought Jesus ate the Passover with, the, with his disciples the night before. All right, you get a gold star. All right, that's, that's brilliant. Um, here's the thing. I've done a lot of research on this, and, and what I've come to is an understanding that there were two side-by-side, -side, even competing calendars in the ancient world. Uh, there was three, if you count the Jewish calendar. Well, the, 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 the Jewish calendar is what we're talking about here. But in those calendars, you had one that was often deemed the, uh, the, the temple calendar. And so the, in the temple calendar, the Passover fell on the day that, that Jesus goes to the cross. It's that, it, it's that, it's that, it starts that evening, that Friday evening. There was, a, there was another uh, uh, sort of an everyday calendar that, that people often used, and, and th they didn't always align. And so in, in the year that we're speaking of, Jesus and his disciples could have had the Passover on on Thursday night, while the, the, temple, the temple calendar had the Passover on Friday night. I think that's a way of reconciling this, um, this seeming discrepancy that works beautifully because Jesus took the Passover meal and transformed it into the Lord's Supper. But it's important that he died on the day of the Passover as recognized by the, the, the leadership in the temple, because when John tells us that it was noon on the day of the Passover, the significance of that reference is that noon was the time that the lambs, the sheep, began to be slaughtered in the temple to be handed over to the families to take home to prepare the Passover meal for that night. Also, at noon, that was the time when Jewish housewives would do their final sweep through of their house, making sure they would check all the cabinets, they would check all the drawers, they would, they would sweep the house, making sure that there was no leaven left in the house. In the Old Testament, leaven was often a sign of sin. And one of the marks of the Passover was unleavened bread, for example. And leaven had to be removed from the house. It had to be gone. So what John is saying is that the very minute that Jesus is about to be uh, condemned as guilty and sentenced to the cross, sent to the execution hill, at that very minute, all of Israel was busy slaughtering the lambs that would take away their sins and eliminating the leaven that represented the sins that they, were, that they were rejecting. You see, God brings everything together so that it always fits in such a beautiful way. Now, 
It was the sixth hour. And here's Pilate. He, he knows he's defeated, but he just can't help himself because he hates these people. He says, look, you're king. Just one more, one more jab. Look, you're king. And then we get one of the strangest verses in the whole Bible. So they shouted, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Let me tell you why this is such a devilish confession. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. We go back to the book of Judges, first of all. But then you, a little bit forward, we get to the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel is the last of the judges, and, and the people come to him and they say, listen, everybody else around here has a king. We, we're tired of having judges. We want to have a king. And Samuel goes to God and he says, Father, you know, what, what is this? That they're, they're trying to kick me out of office. I'm, I mean, I've, I've served here my whole life. And God says, Samuel, it's not about you. It's about me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So here's what you do. You go back and tell them, if you want a king, you can have a king. But you need to understand what it, what it involves to have a king. First of all, he's going to take your, daughter, your daughters and your sons into his own service. He's going to lay claim to your property. He's going to draft your sons, and they're going to fight his wars in his armies. He's going to tax the, uh, he's going to tax the life out of you. In fact, one of these days I want to preach a sermon on that passage because if you get to that first that, that, that section in 1 Samuel, what you basically have is a description of every, uh, every political system in, in human history once it has evolved into its corruption phase. And he says, let them have a king. Well, they got a king. And he was a doozy, King Saul. Saul was followed by David, who was followed by Solomon. But after Solomon, everything went south. Kingdom split into two different nations. The kings were now rivals with each other. And, and the people of God suffered one generation after another. Israel, for example, never after Solomon had a decent king. What happens is, from the time they, they claim they wanted a king, all the way until Jesus comes, most of the Old Testament, you have Israel suffering under their choice of a king rather than God as their ruler. In the coming of Jesus, their real king arrives. And yet, what do they say? They refuse to recognize him. And they say, we only have one king, and it's Caesar. Since that moment, for 2,000 years, the people of Israel have had one king, one Caesar after another. They've been looted, they've been plundered, they've been pillaged, they've been brutalized, they've been occupied, they've been punished, they've been, they've been executed for 2,000 years. Why? 
Because they said, we don't have a king except Caesar. Okay. Caesar has been their king all of this time and will be their king until the embodiment of the last Caesar in Revelation chapter 13, we call him the Antichrist. He will be the final Caesar to dig his heels into the back of the necks of God's people. But let me tell you how this story ends. We have no king but Caesar. See, there was a man standing there. Blood in his eyes, his face swollen, black and blue, probably his eyes swollen shut, crown of thorns on his head, exposed organs, tissue, blood, skin hanging in threads, purple robe. Let me tell you about my king. The story is going to finish and it's going to get worse before it gets better. But that man in the purple robe with the crown of thorns, the bloody mess of a body and face, one of these days, we're going to see that king. Only this time he's going to be seated on a throne. And he's going to be wrapped in light. And he will have angels and saints singing his praises, kneeling before his throne. And when that king makes himself known, we know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including the knees and the tongues of these people in this chapter who said, Hail the King of the Jews! Slap! They will then say, Oh my God! Hail the King of the world! And they'll kneel with their faces in the dust because he is king of kings and lord of lords. But we're not to that part of the story yet. We're left with this. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. A lot of pronouns in that verse. So Pilate then handed Jesus over to the Jewish leadership to be crucified. Man. There is no fun way to end this lesson. In fact, I've already told you, the only passage worse than this in the whole Bible is next week. But let me promise you this. There should be a part of your soul 
that grieves as we read these words. We're going to grieve today. And honestly, we're going to grieve next week too. But let me make you this promise. Let us grieve today. Let us grieve next Sunday. And the next Sunday, we will celebrate to high heaven. You see, when they said, Pilate said, he's innocent. And they said, crucify him. I want you to understand, there are two choices related to Jesus. In your personal life, you can crown him king or you can side with those who crucified him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral territory. There is no demilitarized zone in this equation. And so I say to you, if you are not actively crowning Jesus king in your life, there's only one other option where you could be. So it's time for you to make a decision. This is one of those awkward things in life where to not make a decision is to make a decision. Do you know Jesus Christ? And are you walking in a manner worthy of the King that you follow? Are you putting Him on a throne and bringing Him honor every day? Or have you kept him at arm's length and you said, well, you know, maybe someday, maybe sometime, I'll eventually get around to it. See, I want you to understand there's no neutrality. Crown him or crucify him. Those are your choices. And to not make a choice is to make a choice. Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? Why did I tell you all of this why don't I try and bring out the, the pathos of this moment, the, the, the awful detail of what he went through? The reason it's recorded in the Word of God is so that we understand that there is literally nothing Jesus refused to do in order to secure your salvation. So will you come to him? What if you came to meet Christ today and I promised you that you could be baptized on Easter Sunday morning? Now's the time. Father, thank you for your word. This passage is disturbing on so many levels, deep down in our soul. And yet what we find here is the good and gracious hope that you've done what you promised to do. You've made a way possible for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored in the fellowship with the one who made us. Father, I pray in this moment that you would be unhindered in this place 
that your spirit would have free reign among us. If we need to confess and ask forgiveness, if we need to cry out for salvation, Father, draw us to that. If we need to confess and release some things that have hindered our walk so that we, so that we are serious about our faith, Father, draw us to that. If we need to be together in an accountable relationship with the people who make up this church, draw us to that. In these moments, make your will for each of our lives unmistakable. And Father, give us the courage to respond in faith to whatever you ask. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.